Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Alexa Diaz. I work at Netflix, and I'm super excited to be hosting this week's episode. Every other week on You Can't Make This Up, we bring in a new interviewer to talk about different Netflix shows with special guests. And do you know what each story has in common? They're all surprisingly true. This week, we're looking into the real lives of Black survivalists, from people who have learned to live completely off the grid to those who do bomb drills right in the heart of Times Square. We first learned about the world of Black survivalists in one of the episodes of Follow This, a new pop doc series from BuzzFeed and Netflix. Each episode is under 20 minutes and shadows a BuzzFeed journalist while they explore a new story. And the reporter who wrote about Black survivalists is our guest on today's show, Bim Adewunmi. Bim is a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed and co-hosts the podcast Thirst Aid Kit with poet and writer Nicole Perkins. Usually, Bim and Nicole talk about lust, desire, and pop culture, but we thought it'd be fun to bring in Nicole to interview Bim about her experience reporting on this story and how long she thinks she could survive in a post-apocalypse world. Hi, Bim. Hello, Nicole. <laughs> it's very odd to be looking across from you in a different studio. In a different studio, in a different context, uh, you know, yeah. nature of me interviewing you. Yeah, that's interesting. I know. Okay, <laughs> so let's get started. All right. You have an episode of Follow This mm-hmm. on Netflix about black survivalists. I do. Yes. <laughs> what made you decide to look into black survivalists and preppers? Okay, so um, it came to me um, via my friend Tahira who used to live in the Pacific Northwest. And she had told me that there was a really interesting woman who called herself Afro-Vivalist. And Mm -hmm. I went onto her website, um, which is a lot more polished now uh, post-Netflix, which is cool. Um, But on her website, there's a silhouette of a a woman with an Afro and a pair of heels and wearing a gun, like on her body. Interesting. And I was like, who the hell is that? I want to (laughs) know. So Tahira said, yeah, this woman is really into like urban survivalism. And on her website, Afrovivalist, she calls herself an urban huntress. And I was like, you know what? That's a solid song lyric, but also how interesting to see this person. Um, I think for many people, the idea of survivalism is uh, forever 
enmeshed with whiteness and specifically violent whiteness. Mm-hmm. It's often seen as, you know, end of world scenario, the water wars and, you know, every single ism of the current world being exacerbated by a massive event. And so white supremacy would get even more stringent and that looks like men with guns mm-hmm. um, who are willing to quote unquote protect what's theirs. Mm-hmm. And I think for many people, the idea of survivalism looks like that. So to find this woman who was in many ways a direct opposite that she's a woman she's black she wasn't like a young she's not like 22 Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. she's like this experienced in the world like you know an older woman and for her her stated goal was to prepare herself you know to get ready and I was like all right I'm stressed out but I want to know more yeah so I kind of had the idea to write about her Mm because that's what I do in my day job I am a senior culture writer um, and so I was preparing to kind of reach out and be like hey let's talk about this thing that you do and then um, BuzzFeed and Netflix got together in a beautiful marriage. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I spoke to my editor about it and she was like, oh, this could be really nice and visual. This could be one of your episodes mm-hmm. for for this series. And I pitched it. Um, I say I, we pitched it. Carolina, my editor, um, who is fantastic. And the whole crew was kind of like invested from the get-go. I was like, all right, I want to do this thing that is about survivalism but hey they're black survivalists and Mm -hmm. I think we should not shy away from that difference I don't think a white survivalist is the same thing as a black survivalist merely because the circumstances in which they exist in the world as is Mm -hmm. is not the same so to kind of complicate that um, let's look at it in the context of survivalism yes okay so what were some of the differences that you found with looking at black survivalists versus our idea of what a prepper is, not just obviously race, but uh-huh. also methodology, yeah. how they're going about it, all of that. What were some of the differences you found? So a big thing, I think, is that um, many people don't realize that survivalism actually can be quite expensive. Mm. You know, you have to get gear. You have to have a space. You have to collect. You have to find storage where you can put all the things you're collecting. And the costs add up. So for many people, I don't think many people understand. I think the idea of them in some hovel somewhere, like protecting, it's like, yeah, but that takes money. Yeah. And I think for many people, yeah, survivalism is an expensive hobby slash lifestyle choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in talking to so many people from the black survivalist community, it became very clear that they were conscious of the cost. So they they didn't kind of like dismiss it. It was clearly an issue. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys I spoke to called Aton, um, he was great because he was just kind of like, listen, when shit really hits the fan, yeah. you're not going to necessarily be able to access the things. Like money literally will lose meaning. Like, right. what do you do? Yeah. So he, he was very interested, for example, in making stuff with found objects. So he was someone who was kind of like, let's keep the cost low. Like, what do we need? How do we get them? Um, and because we can't necessarily, not all of us can necessarily afford these brand shiny new gas masks, for example, he essentially was kind of like, great, well, I'll teach you how to do that with a bottle or two bottles and some wire or some twine or whatever. So he was very much a case of kind of like, you don't need the big money. The key thing about his particular movement is teaching people in the community. So for him, it was more of an education 
Um, and that came up a lot. I spoke to a revivalist and she said, you know, the big thing, I mean, I think she wasn't as complex as she could have been. Um, and I tried to push it and she just wasn't delivering. Mm. But she said, you know, the difference is black people aren't connected to the earth anymore. And I was like, why do you think that is? And trying mm. to kind of push her that way. But my feeling is the move for so many black people from rural into urban spaces has meant that there has been a disconnect between them and I guess the things that are more classified as survival skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a big thing. This idea of being unfamiliar with how to even survive outside of the creature comforts that we all know and love. I mean, I'm very much counting myself in this category. I joked at the time, you know, this felt to me one of my favorite shows you know yeah. is the walking dead <laughs> yes. um and that feeling for me of understanding that oh not only would i have not not made it this far into the apocalypse i would have died in like the pre-credit sequence and actually fairly happily just kind of like yeah. you know what fair enough if you don't have the skills <laughs> just die like it's not a problem yeah just try to die quietly like that's like that was my motto it's like don't attract zombies just die quietly so I'm very aware of the fact that I have massive limitations. I, for example, cannot drive. Yes, that's one of my questions (laughs) for you. (laughs) I'm glad because I've had so many thoughts and feelings about how how would I be able to survive in the event of whatever the you know the disaster looks like? Mm-hmm. I feel like I've weighed them all up and I'm like, huh, I might survive six more hours in this one, but I'm dying quick either way. Mm-hmm. Like, so it really kind of, I was amused on the one hand because I was like, lol, these people and their ideas. Yeah. And then very quickly also kind of like, man, if shit did, <laughs> yes, <laughs> this would be it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you bring up that you're a city girl. You don't know how to drive. No. Do you feel more inclined to learn now? Do you know what? No. Um, because I did take some <laughs> lessons. I know, don't look at me like that. I know. Okay. I took some lessons okay. um, many years ago, more than a decade ago. I have spatial awareness. I understand how things fit. I'm, I'm from the city. I know not mm-hmm. to touch people. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I can gauge distance quite well. Yeah. In a car, that all goes out the window, no pun intended. Yeah. Like I literally sit down in the car. I put my hands on the steering wheel. I put my feet on the bloody pedals. And I'm just kind of like, what is space? What is, I don't right. understand. And and you need to learn how to drive stick too. Exactly. Because, because you never know what you're going to find exactly. when you're on the run and you have to make do with what's exactly. there. Exactly. This is it. So there are so many barriers to learning. But the key thing is me. I know that I am, yeah. like I, I had like maybe three lessons or maybe yeah. two. And I know I should have stuck at it because that's what everyone tells you to do. Yeah. But I was just kind of like, it's okay. Maybe this just means I was meant to be rich. And so <laughs> it's fine. Like somebody will drive me places. Yes, um, but you, you're not going to have a drive in an apocalypse. I mean, you don't know my circumstances, Nicole. I might have a driver in the apocalypse. Sure. (laughs) All right. And then also driving with glasses is a whole different thing because your peripheral is like compromised. It is. And you have to adjust for all that kind of stuff. Well, I think about that as well. Just the things that we have grown used to. I wear glasses. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't think I would ever allow myself to get LASIK or any kind of laser surgery to yeah. repair my eyesight but in the event of an, ev- of an event mm-hmm. what do you do with all these things that we have kind of folded into modern life like right. where would I get my contact lens prescription <laughs> do you understand yeah so you have to mob through a couple of uh, Warby Parkers or something like yeah, that but and- what happens when they run out Hey, I exactly. Don't know. You see, so yeah. like this you have really to be very uh, careful with everything. I mean, sure, but that can't happen. <laughs> and I think that was the thing. Like this idea of, you know, you have to kind of divorce yourself from your reality in right now, and it mm-hmm. does seem insane. And I think the thing that I found very much with these people is they know they sound insane. Mm. They're aware that they look odd or weird or whatever. 
And, you know, I've had people kind of comment afterwards and kind of go, to me, you know, prepping is a sick, sick pastime because it's kind of like the glee with which these people are preparing for the worst. And I was like, eh, not so much. Because when I spoke to these people, a lot of the time, especially for the, the black survivalists, one of the most radicalizing moments for them was Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. And that's when they thought to themselves, hold on, the government doesn't give a shit about us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that was a real kind of, you know, it was a massive gong of like, pay attention for these people where it was kind of like, I had my suspicions, you know, folklore, like in terms of like, you know, uh, community myth and community stories and community history. Like we, we, everything becomes a bit of everything, right? It's never just the straight facts. There's all these other bits added on. So you can argue with yourself and kind of go, eh, I guess some of this must be, you know, kind of just hyperbole. And then Hurricane Katrina happened and in front of the nation and the world, Suddenly it was like, oh, it's not hyperbole. Mm-hmm. All of it is happening as, as it would. People were abandoned. People died. People were forgotten. People who, you know, support was withdrawn very quickly, if right. offered at all. And it was like this massive kind of like eye-opening experience for many people. And when I spoke to Afrovivalist, when I spoke to Aton, when I spoke to Bettine and Crystal Energy, they were just saying essentially, Hurricane Katrina taught you that if you don't look out for yourself, no one will look out for you. Right. And I think that for me was like this idea of as a galvanizing moment for them. That was interesting for me as well, because I'm not American. Uh, I'm black, but I'm British. And I think we haven't had such a, a moment in 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 terms of like natural disaster mm-hmm. for black Brits, mm-hmm. um, which is not to say we need one in order to get ready. Right. But just this idea of one unifying moment where I suppose arguably the government's contempt was laid bare for like poor communities or communities of colour and often where those two intersect. And I think that was for them a real eye-opening moment. And many of them, in fact, all of them brought up Hurricane Katrina as a turning point for them. I wonder um, if that is also one of the differences between white preppers and black survivalists. Their concern seemingly more about what happens in the fallout of a war Mm. or, you know, they're just trying to get off grid, period. Mm. Um, Whereas these black survivalists are very much concerned with environmental racism if they don't necessarily call it that. Right. So is is that something that you saw? Would you say that that's a fair assessment? I think so. I think they were very aware of the intersections of specifically government policy and how they live their lives. Like, I think that was a very important thing. They, They are so, I suppose... I mean, they do have a similar thing, which is that something bad will happen soon, Mm -hmm. which I think they do have in common with white survivalists. This idea that, you know, there's that Tom Hanks character on SNL who kind of has quite a lot in common with with like he's this rural white man. And and he has this distrust of the government is something that, you know, black people understand like when he's. But I think where it kind of deviates is essentially whiteness protects. Mm -hmm. And I think for black survivalists, there is a very clear knowledge that we can't trust the government, but also we will not be protected. Mm -hmm. You know, so on the one hand, you can say everyone's justified to, you know, not trust the government. Some people are more justified than others. Like there is history in place to suggest that when it really goes down, you will be the first to be forgotten or to be kind of cast aside or whatever. And I think for black survivalists, there is that very, very present knowledge because things are not, things are, I mean, things aren't perfect for anyone, but they're arguably more imperfect right now mm-hmm. for black and brown folks or poor folks or where the two kind of meet than they are for white people. So there's an urgency yeah. to it, which is kind of like we're barely surviving now. If things were to go really bad, whether that be an environmental problem or war or whatever, we would not be looked after doubly. And mm-hmm. I think that was that's the that's the driving force of kind of like things are bad now. 
So imagine how much worse they could get. Right. I want to go back to Afrovivalist. Mm. Um, does she live completely off grid? I understand you have to protect her anonymity, and so we can't say where she lived, yeah. where you went, or yeah. her real name. <laughs> but is she completely off grid? Does she have a day job? Like, what does she have? How does she earn money to get the gear that she, she has? Well, she's listen. Afrovivalist was impressive. Like, I, I suppose at the back of my mind, I had harbored an idea that I was going to kind of like smile indulgently and kind of be like, okay. Mm-hmm. But then I met her and I was like, you know what? She's talking sense. So she does have a job. Okay. Um, she has a family, she has children and so on. But she's also someone who I think, she talks about a lot about her father who had been in service. I forget which branch. But she was saying how he loved to hunt. He taught her. And she was someone who kind of like had a real moment where she was like, I need to go back to the land. Mm-hmm. And so she did that. Um, but she does have a job and she's been collecting for years. Like she has like plans to eventually be fully off grid. Mm. But at the moment, it's kind of like a almost like a weekend. Mm. Uh, she drives to her place mm-hmm. off grid, which was one of my favorite captions in the whole episode. It was like, you know, it's like off the grid USA. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I made it. Um, but I thought that was, you know, she she's she's not operating without a plan Mm. this is not just something that she kind of wanders in and out of this is like everything she's doing right now she said is to make sure that she can eventually go off grid even before anything happens interesting yeah she's just ready to just kind of be done with it she's just kind of like just let me free you know she hunts Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Let's talk about the let's turkey about hunt. That. Yeah, um, was that your first experience on a hunt? Did you feel like it changed the way you approached meat? <laughs> after Do you that? know what? No, meat is bloody delicious, <laughs> and um, seeing a creature, you know, disemboweled and whatever, not a problem. I mean, I know I look pretty taken aback when yeah, she's disemboweling the turkey. Nervous laughter happening. I mean, it's off <laughs> for me. Okay, so this is the thing. So I, I grew up in Britain. And also in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nigerians have no qualms about letting you know where your food is coming from. You know, we killed chickens every few weeks and yeah. we made a delicious stew and we ate that stew and it was great. <laughs> and so I've never been, I plucked chickens. I've never killed one myself, mm-hmm. but I have held a still warm chicken and plucked its feathers off and then fried the delicious meat and eaten it and kind of said, thank you, chicken. That was great. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not squeamish necessarily. I think I'm actually quite, I've got quite a hard lined stomach. Yeah. But there is something about somebody reaching into the cavity of a dead bird and pulling out her heart or its heart I don't know. And saying, here, aha. Uh-huh. And I'm like, do you know what? I don't need to see that. I understand that's a dead bird. Uh, I actually have a couple of feathers from that from that. I was going to ask, did you take the heart as a souvenir? I did not take the heart as a souvenir because okay. that would be sick. Um, instead, <laughs> I took a couple of tail feathers uh-huh. and they are currently uh, on my bedside table. And I look at them and I remember our survivalists and our wonderful time together off grid USA. <laughs> And I fall asleep with dreams of survivalism. It's, it's wonderful. Okay, let's play a clip from that scene because it's, it's too good. <laughs> Gotta get the guts out. <laughs> wow. You all right? I'm great. Here, girl, have no, a heart. Um, do you know what? That's a lovely gift. No thanks. <laughs> it's kind of remarkable how it goes from looking like a once living creature to just meat. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's one word for it. So did you spend the night out in the woods with Afrovivalist? How was that? So that was very... Listen, again, I am someone who generally is quite hardy. I think in as much as I'm a city girl who has, you know, I love my comforts and whatever. Mm -hmm. 
I'm very adaptable. So I'm like, all right, fine. I guess we're sleeping in the woods. Yeah. Um, the thing about the woods and people forget when you've lived in cities for so long is that the darkness is total. Oh, yeah. So at night, there is nothing. Like you cannot make out the shape of your own hand in front of your face. Mm-hmm. And I had forgotten that. Um, mm. And so that for me was kind of like, oh, no, it's, yeah, this could, rah, okay, cool. Yeah. So <laughs> there were lots of, I had to kind of like G myself up to go and pee in the middle of the night because um, mm-hmm. the outhouse was far away so there was like a physical building or yeah. did you just have to go to a little I hole just had to go to, no it was it was a it was i mean essentially a hole but it yeah. was in a in a constructed building it had four walls okay a little light you know a little bug zapper uh-huh so it was you know oh, interesting yeah they, listen see that's okay so aren't trying to die of fucking malaria like they have plans <laughs> they, they have bug zappers nobody enjoys a spider on the face well see i'm thinking they're just like okay you need to go like so many hundreds of feet away and dig a hole and then cover it up and no, then come back because and this is the thing survivalists are planners mm. so they don't do holes in the ground mm. they build a thing like okay if we're going to be off grid we're going to make sure that the water table is undisturbed we're going to make sure that yeah. we're planning you know the populations of turkey stay the same you know what i mean mm-hmm. like people are pl- by nature these are these are the planners of the world so in fact their digs are actually quite nice okay so yeah so okay. in the middle of the night i'd have to go up and that was the thing so you know we had like a i had a head torch mm-hmm. um so i could see where i was going and on the one hand of course there's like the terror of the unknown when the when the night is dark and you're just kind of like you know what if i die i die which is fatalistic um <laughs> but also very mean actually quite british kind of like well it's time but on the <laughs> other hand i was oddly relaxed because i was like you know technically i'm in the safest place i could be Right, because you have someone who knows the area right. where everything is. They know who I am. Yeah, like, and it's not as though I was gonna like, hopefully, die quietly. Like mm-hmm. I was going to just whimper or yell. <laughs> someone would be like, "Wait, wait, what's that sound?" And that's the other thing: sound carries when there is oh, nothing. Yeah. So literally, a crunch of a twig. I was like, "Why is that so bloody loud?" But everything is loud. So you know what? It was terrifying for like five minutes yeah then afterwards i was like oh my god this is what giving in feels like i was like oh okay uh, come on in yeah yeah that was great so yeah that was like that was the wildest night i spent like mm-hmm. every other time i was asleep in my own bed for the rest of the episode mm-hmm. but yeah to spend time with apropivalist so we could get up early enough to go hunt turkeys i had to sleep out there in the wild and it was lovely the air was crisp mm-hmm. you know we literally you know me and the crew we, we went looking at stars i don't know how to stargaze so i was told by a wonderful pa um she was basically pointing out it felt very much like a, a meet cute which is actually very <laughs> odd but she was showing me she was like oh that's the big dipper I was like oh that's the dipper and she was like you know it was great I felt very kind of like I was like wow you know what put some romantic jazz music on this and you know what we've got ourselves a date like it was just lovely um, so yeah it's absolutely beautiful absolutely peaceful I can see why so when I spoke to Afrovivalist the next day and she was saying you know I have peace of mind and on the one hand, you do think to yourself, mm, I guess, sis. But on the yeah. other, I'm like, you look pretty happy. Like yeah. the idea of planning gave her joy. The idea of being prepared for something gave her joy. And it gave her peace because she was saying how she didn't feel safe. She wasn't, she she was stressed out. Do you think that that comes from um, being prepared or just also being like, I'm going to survive and you're not? I imagine there's some of that in okay. there. Because we, you know, we asked and said, this didn't make it into the episode, but we were like, you know, does your family, like, I bet your family's really glad that they have you. And she was like, I've told them to prepare. Oh, so she doesn't take them out with her. Like some, well, she asked. And that's Mm -hmm. the thing. She extended the invitation. She said, come on, let's learn this, you know. And her family, she was like, you know, they're very girly, her sister and her mom and so on. And she was like, so they just didn't. And I was like, 
okay, what does that mean? And she mm-hmm. was like, well, I guess it means what it means. And I was like, right, that's hard. But also, like, she's planning her life based on her needs. Yeah. And so if her family's not willing to get on board, she's kind of like, well, you know. So she's fully prepared to leave them behind. Well, not prepared. Like, resigned to it. Resigned. If push okay. came to shove. Like, okay. she's kind of like... I've extended this. You know, uh-huh. she's t- you know, she was talking about teaching her grandson how to shoot. She got him a little bow and arrow for his birthday recently. And I was like, <laughs> okay, Afrovivalist. She was um yeah, she she was someone who I think yeah, part of it was I think anyway, I don't know, you'd have to ask her, but I think part of it is kind of like I'm prepared and you're not and you know, when yeah. the shit hits the fan, you'll see. Yeah. But I think most of it was just kind of like she said how she felt so you know, she was talking a lot about the current administration and she was talking about how it felt very kind of good old boys and not really for her. And so she, you know, she wasn't sleeping well. She was yeah. wondering what might become of her. Katrina had opened her eyes to this thing, mm-hmm. various hurricanes and disaster relief and all that stuff. And she was like, wait, I can make plans. I can do stuff. Um, and I think, you know, that was actually kind of, I suppose it was very, it was, I found... I found it fascinating. Like, I'm not sure I could relate 100%, but I understood. Yeah, these the survivalists that you um, talked to in the episode seem very confident in that it's it's not a matter of prevention. It's more of a when, not if. Right. Like, there will be in this these scenarios, mm. it's definitely happening. Can you speak more to their confidence about the fact that yeah. some kind of way all hell is going to break loose and we're going to have to survive on our own? And how does that affect their day-to-day activities? Are they anxious people? Uh-huh. Or, you know, how do they go about their daily, quote-unquote, regular lives? Right. So I think for someone like Aton, who has been doing this for such a long time, he started off, he kind of got concerned about, what might happen. I think he kind of looked around one day in New York and was like, we are ripe for something terrible. Mm -hmm. And he spoke a little bit about, you know, how he had somehow foreseen or at least had an idea that something like 9-11 might happen. Because he's been doing um, disaster preparedness classes since 1989. Yeah, he's been on this. Yeah, Like, he's not new to this. He's true to this. And I, (laughs) I, I kind of respected that. Like, this is consistent. That this was someone saying... Look, mm-hmm. I know what I sound like. I know what I look like. But trust me, something yeah. is coming. And part of that, I think, for him, the justification came after the attacks on September 11. Mm-hmm. And I think for th- that kind of sharpened his his zeal where he was kind of like, all right, what we need to do is learn how to protect people. And I think that's why, for example, the thing about teaching people how to use gas masks mm-hmm. and how to make them rather, that's such an important thing to him because it, in his mind, the the event, capital E, might be anything. I think people always think that preppers are preparing for some kind of war. And it's like, no, it might not even be that. Mm -hmm. It could just be a series of like terrible environmental disasters and the way global warming works out and so on and so forth. No one can quite predict what it will be. But they are, yeah, they are, I wouldn't say even confident. I think they're just, again, resigned. They know something is on roots. They, They, you know, these are people who kind of study weather patterns and they look at, I don't know, the distribution of, wealth and they're Mm -hmm. kind of like "Eh, something doesn't quite curl all the way over so we have to make sure that in the event that it kind of uncurls so horribly we're able to kind of survive and our communities can thrive despite that and in many ways you know some of them said the thing about you know well we're actually better disposed to this than others because we have been dealing with so little in terms Mm -hmm. of like resources Mm -hmm. that maybe that makes us more adaptable so there was that um for people like Bettine and Crystal Energy the couple who were kind of like very interested in making sure that there are legally owned firearms um for many people in the black community that also became you know that thing I was saying before about government policy and how Mm -hmm. 
you know, just social understanding of of weapons and so on. I think, again, the idea that white people love to play with guns, um, but black people don't, because Mm -hmm. what it looks like when a black person is holding a gun is very different to what it looks like when a white person is holding a gun. Um, And, I, you know, Eitan, for example, kind of had like a bit of a Black Panther background and he had gone to the camps as a child and he had, you know, the idea of self-reliance, the idea of self-sufficiency, like these things are not new concepts to them. They had been kind of thinking about this for so long and they've been kind of like percolating for so long and so when they grew up of course they fall back onto these things that are so familiar to them that they know and that is the idea that you don't look after yourself no one will and so the self-reliance thing I think for for especially for Bettine and for Crystal was kind of like if we were to accumulate if we were able to kind of protect ourselves and all that stuff how would we how would what would that look like and the answer is for them legal weaponry like Mm -hmm. you know they 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 spoke a lot i went to a community meeting that they did up in harlem and they were talking about things like you know here is the process if you want to um legally own and buy a gun here is what you require to do so they have like these workshops where they are essentially teaching black people who traditionally have been kind of left out of owning guns right and they're kind of like no this is important you need to know how to do that and for bettine he was kind of saying well you need to protect what you've got um, and you need to be able also to kind of beyond protecting, just defend yourself. Because if things were to go south, you know, human beings are notoriously, you know, under a little bit of pressure, they go feral. Yeah, <laughs> fairly yeah. Quickly. I mean, we see that in all the post-apocalyptic TV shows and movies where people yeah. become desperate. I mean, and... we even see it on Black Friday. So yeah. how much yes. more so <laughs> when like people are pummeling themselves for like a $300 TV? Right. They'll do so much more for survival. Right. Yeah. Right. So again, your urge to roll your eyes is tempered with actually he's not wrong. Right. You shot this episode before you went home for the summer, back to London. Yeah. When you went home, did you find yourself looking at the city like, okay, this is my escape route? Uh Did it affect how you look at your city now? A little bit. Yeah. I went home to London and I was with friends and we went for a little walk and a coffee around Monument, which is um, a part of central London, which commemorates the Great Fire of London, Mm -hmm. in which, you know, the city was decimated in many ways and looking at that and thinking to myself oh yeah there was there was a disaster it happened right here and you know you're looking at this massive thing that they've built and they're talking about where it started we were in pudding lane where the fire started and kind of raised across you know saint paul's cathedral is in the distance and so on and so i did think to myself huh if there was a fire right now of the same magnitude what would that look like for me like what or mm. a, a disaster of that kind of like you know reality altering disaster where you see it like it's taking stuff from you I think yeah I was a little bit more aware but again came that oddly fatalistic but also deeply realistic feeling of huh I guess I'll die then um (laughs) (laughs) it's not funny but it's It's not but it's but it was just kind of like because you think about it there are so many of us on the on the planet there are so many of us in cities there are so many of us clueless about how to do anything so on the one hand, I was like, maybe I'd survive a little bit longer than the average person, right? Mm-hmm. Thanks to my exposure to these people and, you know, the, the ways in which they live their lives. But on the other hand, really deep, deep down, what would the, how far would that knowledge get me? So this for me has been like a taster. I do have the bug out bag that Afrovivalist prepared for me. Right. That is yeah. literally in my hallway. Yeah. Um, and so I'm kind of like, well... Did you add anything to it beyond what she showed us? I put a couple of pairs of socks in there because okay. I, I get cold feet all the time. So I was like... <laughs> You know, customize the bug out bag for yourself. So yeah. I, put, I put some woolly socks in there. Okay. Um, 
But, you know, I guess for me, it's kind of like this understanding principles that you can carry into any disaster scenario. So Mm. I have batteries now and like a torch in my bag and just little things, just everything now is just in case, just Mm -hmm. in case. And again, I suppose the odds are not that something will happen. But if they did, Mm. like you should have a torch and some batteries in your bag. Yeah. You should do that. That's not, these are not, everything that they said was not illogical. It may have seemed fantastical, but none of what they were saying was illogical. It was based in a very, very real reality Mm -hmm. for them. Like this wasn't, like they weren't dreaming up scenarios. The shit was real. Yeah. You have met with these survivalists Mm -hmm. and you've got your bug out bag in the hallway. Yep. So if, you were to open your door, step outside, and Rick Grimes was there. Like, <laughs> shit has just gone down. Are you ready? Let's go. Yeah. Do you feel confident that you could survive? I'd be like, Rick, let me put my boots on. Yes, I feel confident. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have some knowledge now that I did not have before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have new ways of thinking that I did not have before. So I do think that, yeah, I am better prepared. Before, you know, in in the program I said I might not make it to the pre-credit sequence. Mm -hmm. I could, like, do a solid season. Like, I could survive a solid season. That's significant. You know, I I feel like that's the job of so many journalists, right? You go in with zero knowledge and you come out the other side, a veritable expert on the other side. I'm not quite expert level. I cannot, for example, fire a a rifle. Like, Afrovivalist had, she, we went hunting, you know. But, you know, yeah, I, I suppose, I mean, I can't quite mimic a turkey call, but I could learn how to do so. And okay. I think, you know, my brain is wide open now. I'm like, well, let's learn. Let's see what's what. And yeah, I suppose I have a, a better understanding of the idea of, I don't know, filtering the air or whatever, or filtering water or keeping yourself safe and warm and mm-hmm. all these other things. Yeah, it's not... You know, I'm not Bear grills. I'm not out there hiking through the Amazon or whatever. Mm. But I also think, yeah, I could live. Okay. I mean, I, I don't have to die pre-credit now. Like, yeah. now I have some skills. I've picked at least at least seven skills up. <laughs> and I feel like that would extend my life by about a season's worth of activity. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, <laughs> I'm excited for what you're going to teach me at some point. I mean, you said I'm going to teach you. Maybe you, I'm going to protect my own resources. Oh, okay. You're just going <laughs> to leave me out there to die. That's Listen, fine. we're all God's children. He'll look after you. It's fine. Uh, well, thanks, Bim. <laughs> <laughs> that was Bim and Nicole. You can check out their podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, with new episodes that come out every Thursday. But before we let them go, let's find out what they're watching on Netflix. It's time for What You Watching, where we take a sneak peek at our guests' continue watching list. Well, Bim, what are you watching on Netflix now? Like, what's what's got your attention? Okay, so I am the worst person because <laughs> I use uh, my Netflix as my background a lot of the time. Mm. So, sadly, <laughs> somewhat, <laughs> basically... I have a lot of friends in my most viewed or at least my viewing activity. So a lot of friends um, around season four. Um, That seems to be my sweet spot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also I watched um, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. Of course, yeah. I still love it. I watch it and it just feels, it's like a hug in a movie. Um, So shout shout out to Jenny Han for writing an amazing book and shout out to Netflix for producing it. It's given me it's given me all my 15 year old feelings. Um, <laughs> also, I watch Good News, um, which is this comedy um, about it's a workplace comedy. It's in the vein of 
30 Rock a little bit, Better Off Ted a little bit. It's, yeah, it's it's a weird one. Like, it's it's funny, but also I'm like, why am I watching this? But it only had one season? One season so far. Yeah. It's created by Tracy Wickfield. I laughed a lot. And some of the jokes, I was like, this is stupid, but I laughed a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> who's the fool? I really enjoyed that, actually. So, that's, that's what's on there. Um, it's all good, though. What are you watching? Oh, wow. Okay, so um, I've been watching a lot of murder mystery things. So Mrs. Fisher's Murder Mysteries, which I've already seen three times already, but I keep going back to it. It's a great series. That's why. Um, Midsummer Murders. um, Oh, yeah. See, that's that British stuff I was talking about. That's the stuff Americans love to consume from Britain. (laughs) Here you are, fulfilling the stereotype. Yes, (laughs) I love a good mystery, um, a good cozy mystery. Yeah. Uh, And then also uh, Frasier. You will have to stream Frasier into my casket, my urn, and I don't know, into space, wherever I end up. Into the apocalypse. Yes. <laughs> I love Frasier so much and so that is, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much all my, I'm That's your background noise yeah. is, is Frasier. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it in your house. <laughs> yeah, just come into the house like, Nicole, oh, just Frasier's on. Yes. It's great. It's wonderful. It's I my love favorite. It. <laughs> and that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back in two weeks with a special episode all about Making a Murderer Part 2. The highly anticipated series is coming back to Netflix on October 19th, but we're launching an exclusive interview with directors Laura Ricciardi and Moira Demos on October 17th. So stay tuned for that and even more Making a Murderer content right here on You Can't Make This Up. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. It helps other people find it, and generally, it makes me happy. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue. I'm Alexa Diaz. Thanks for listening. 